For the week beginning the 5th of February, this is the history of pop culture. I'm Chesney Forks-Porter. Hello, let's get started. Today on the show, we have a right royal knees up as we look back at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II and all her jubilees thereafter. Then we play a real game of cat and mouse as we look at the lifespan of the greatest rivalry in history, the animated anarchy of Tom and Jerry. We get a little weird with it as we look at the career of one of the funniest men in music, the prince of the parody, Weird Al Yankovic. And we double up on the royalty as I test your knowledge about some famous fictional royals from the world of television and film. But first... It's 1952. The war's been over for a few years and life seems to be moving forward at a steady pace for everyone on these little islands of Great Britain. And then, to put a fly in the ointment, the king dies. And a rather young little princess is recalled from a trip to Africa and told to become the most powerful woman on the planet. Let's have a look back to the 6th of February 1952. The coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. Now, let's not dive into too much pre-crowning history because royalty is inherently boring. But I do want to get this off my chest straight away before anybody writes in to say, this isn't pop culture, this is history. To that I say, shame on you, sir. I would argue that this coronation was potentially one of the biggest pop culture events in history. Millions of Brits went out and brought a TV just for this occasion. And it was the first coronation to be broadcast around the world. There were massive street parties and communal watching groups, and they invented a whole new chicken dish for it. It spawned decades of massive jubilee celebrations which showed off the state of pop culture in Britain through different time periods. And if that's not pop culture, I don't know what is. So, let's let's do a little background. Queen Elizabeth II, her dad, George VI, dies. Elizabeth was away on holidays. She comes back and says, I am the very model of a modern major monarch, and I want this coronation to be fully broadcast and accessible. And so our good friend, the BBC, said, No problem, Mum, we will sort that right out for you. And this was, for many, the very first event any person had watched on television. The amount of TV licenses in the country doubled from 1.5 to around 3 million leading up to the event, and the estimated viewing figures for the day was around 27 million people in the UK. That's over half the country. These figures, of course, are not fully robust, as telly was in its infancy at the time, and viewing figures were genuinely decided by just going around and asking people what they remembered watching in the last week. You can look that up, that's true. But I, I would have loved to have been able to see the scenes of you know families and friends and neighbours huddled around screens the size of iPad minis trying to watch the ceremony. There's just something so oddly lovely about that. It's that sort of you know inherent British spirit that um, patriarchs and racists like to talk about, but it is true. 
There were a lot more firsts when it came to the Queen's coronation. It was the first coronation that was televised, and it was the first event ever live broadcast to other countries outside the UK from within the UK. So people in France, West Germany, Belgium, Denmark and the Netherlands were able to watch the ceremony live. Which sounds like a really boring Eurovision final to me, really. It was also crazily important that Canadians were able to watch the service on the day too, because the Queen is also the head of state in Canada. But they couldn't quite figure out a way to get it to them live, so they genuinely named an operation Operation Pony Express, the very first non-stop flight between the UK and Canadian mainland, which rapidly escorted rolls of film tape over to Canada so it could be broadcast the very same day through a few hours delay. Now, some other rather surprising experiments for television took place at the coronation too. Two British cameramen working for Pathé News rather amazingly filmed around 15 minutes of the ceremony in 3D. I'm not joking. In the 50s, 3D TV by using two cameras very close together to create a 3D image. The footage was never used or shown anywhere and lay dormant for decades in one of the men's garages until it was finally unearthed and shown on television for the very first time in 2017 when the uh, crave for those 3D TVs was at its rather pointless peak. Do you remember? 2017, how every television that you went to see in Curry's had those weird little tinted grey glasses, and then literally two years later, nobody was doing it. Anyway, what isn't useless, though, is, of course, colour TV, which, even though it would be another 15 years for Brits to get colour TV when it was introduced during the 1967 Wimbledon tournament, there was actually a rather heartwarming use of colour filming at the ceremony. A separate filming team filmed the ceremony in colour and screened it exclusively to children at the Great Ormond Street Hospital, meaning those kids were the only people in the entire world who got to watch it in full colour. And I think that is just lovely. So, final viewing figures worldwide. The Queen's coronation was watched by an estimated 277 million people, which by today's standards is not a completely unheard of amount. But this is at a time when there were only an estimated 30 million televisions in the entire world. That's absolutely nothing. That's an impressive feat for a very tiny island that is intent on pissing everybody off. <laughs> now, celebrating that coronation and subsequent anniversaries of the coronation might literally be the thing we do best in this country. During celebrations for the original coronation, the government handed out bank holidays left, right and centre so street parties could take place and everyone could try the official coronation dish, coronation chicken, which I think has a lot more popular appeal than the coronation quiche they tried to throw on us at last year's event. We even held a football tournament because we do that very well. It was called the Coronation Cup which pitted off the top four English teams at the time, Arsenal, Man United, Newcastle and Tottenham, and the top four Scottish teams, Aberdeen, Celtic, Hibernian and Rangers. The tournament was a major, major deal and attracted quite a lot of attention, with the final, which ended up being won by Celtic after beating fellow Scots Hibernian, attracting 117,000 fans to attend in person. Now look, 
I'm not saying that if they did the exact same cup today that it wouldn't be an all-Scottish final. I'm just saying it would be quite unlikely. Now, let's talk jubilees, as the Queen had four biggins. Her silver, gold, diamond and platinum jubilee. Bloody jubes! Her silver jubilee, which marked her 25th year in 1977, I'll be honest, wasn't that cool. To be fair, it was very similar to the celebrations for her actual coronation. She toured the Commonwealth, meeting peasants and world leaders alike, and the UK was given a butt-ton of bank holidays to have more communal street parties and get a bit leery in honour of Queen Lizzie. And it all climaxed with a big parade through London, which had a global audience of over 500 million people. It's her gold jubilee where things started to get a little bit spicy as we get to have a look at the sign of the times. 2002, 50 years on the throne, let's go big or let's go home. That was a good rhyme. You had all the usual stuff, international visits, a big parade, even a poetry competition for school kids. But then we had the big jubilee weekend and the famous party at the palace. A huge concert outside Buckingham Palace, with 12,000 ticketed attendees watching and over 1 million unticketed attendees watching outside. This event was a showcase of the biggest and brightest in British music and featured one of the most iconic television moments of all time as Sir Brian May of Queen fame lugged himself up to the roof of Buckingham Palace and played God Save the Queen up on that roof. Now... Let's go through some more highlights of this concert because this lineup included Paul McCartney, Elton John, Phil Collins, Queen, minus Freddie, S Club 7, Ricky Martin, Tom Jones, Shirley Bassey, Brian Adams, Tony Bennett, and more. It was the biggest celebration of its kind ever until 10 years later, 2012. Possibly the greatest year in modern British history. Absolute peak Britain. This one's my favourite, mainly because it was the first Jubilee I really knew what was going on. I would have been about 13, 14 at the time. Now, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, in the very same summer that London was hosting the Olympic Games, that is something special. And though a lot of the celebrations were scaled back due to some Tory austerity cuts, they still found the time to light over 4,000 beacons around the Commonwealth in celebration and to perform the Jubilee Boat Parade, a flotilla of over 1,000 boats from around the Commonwealth going down the Thames, the most boats on the river in over 350 years. And of course, much like 10 years before, we had the Diamond Jubilee concert. And as a 14-year-old, this was my Roman Empire. This was the highlight of my life up to that point. The concert was masterminded by the constantly middle-aged Gary Barlow, with his song, Sing, becoming the official anthem of the Jubilee. Now, this concert had less of a focus on Britain and more on just having a jolly good time. And a lot of the Golden Jubilee concert was focused on the biggest stars ever, whilst this felt more like current to the times, with performances from Robbie Williams, JLS, Will I Am, Ed Sheeran and Cheryl Cole, mixing it up with the big dogs of Elton John, Tom Jones, Stevie Wonder, Madness and Paul McCartney. 
This was truly my Roman Empire. I had the DVD and everything. Now, last one. No spoilers here. It's the last one. The Platinum Jubilee rolled around in 2022. The world celebrated the Queen and her achievements, and she said, Thanks very much. I'll call it a day, and promptly died. But not before we got one last big British party in. The Platy Jubes. Me and a few friends headed into central London to sit in a big park and watch the Platinum Party at the Palace. One more big concert with the likes of Rod Stewart, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Diversity, Alicia Keys, Sam Ryder, George Ezra, Elton John and Diana Ross. And I don't know if I'm just getting cynical in my old age, but I think of the three big Jubilee concerts, this was the worst. It was by no means bad. It just didn't match the pageantry and star power of the previous two. But for me, they made up for it with the platinum pageant, which for me was the highlight of the celebration, as over 10,000 people took part in a massive parade which showcased 70 decades of a changing Britain. If you've never watched it, I would highly recommend. So, hopefully... I've done enough to convince you why the Queen's coronation was such a massive pop culture event. Because if I haven't, you're not going to like this bit. The Queen's coronation plus subsequent jubilees is getting a 10 out of 10 on my popometer. Now, time for a whole host of shorter stories from the week in pop culture. The 5th of February 1924, the closing of the very first Winter Olympics in Chamonix, France. Also on the 5th of Feb 1944, the Captain America film starring Dick Purcell is released, the very first time a superhero appeared outside of a comic book. Also on the 5th of Feb 1953, Disney released the film Peter Pan. And on the 5th of February 1977, legendary boxer Sugar Ray Leonard makes his boxing debut in a unanimous decision win. On the 6th of February 1935, Monopoly goes on sale for the first time. And on the 6th of February, 2014, Jay Leno presents his final Tonight Show. On the 7th of February, 1914, Charlie Chaplin debuts his most famous character, The Tramp. And on the 7th of February, 1940, Pinocchio is released. On the 8th of February, 1965, the Supremes release Stop in the Name of Love. And on the 8th of February, 1976, Scorsese film Taxi Driver premieres. On the 8th of Feb 1999, Nintendo releases the very first Mario Party game. And on the 9th of Feb 1961, the Beatles perform at the Cavern Club for the very first time. 9th of February 1985, Madonna releases Like a Virgin and it goes to number one. On the 9th of February 1997, The Simpsons airs its 167th episode, making it the longest running animated show ever. On the 10th of February 1997, Mario Kart 64 is released. And on the 10th of February 2004, Kanye West releases his debut album, College Dropout. Finally, on the 10th of February 2018, Tottenham defeats Arsenal in a game at Wembley. Come on, you Spurs. Earning the record attendance for a Premier League game with 83,000 fans. Of course, now is a good time to mention that if you're enjoying the show and want a daily dose of pop culture history, you can head to our TikTok page at History of Pop Culture. On there, you'll find a daily minute-long hit of the biggest stories from today in the history of pop culture, as long as I remember to do one. Now, back to the show.
For our second story of the day, we look back at a battle that has been raging for 80 years. A colossal tussle between the immovable object and unstoppable force. One setting barbaric traps for the other, whilst one is a master of subterfuge and strategy. Listener discretion is advised as we talk about the 10th of February 1940, the very first Tom and Jerry cartoon. In the 1930s, a young man named Joseph Barbera joined movie makers MGM as an animator. He learned pretty quick that MGM were looking to find some new, exciting animated characters and so teamed up with another animator at the studio, William Hanna, to come up with some ideas. So, yes, for those of you surprised, Hanna-Barbera is not one person. It's the last names of two people. Took me a while to figure that out too. Now, the two knocked heads together and came up with a few ideas, including one in which two equal characters are constantly in conflict. Their first thought was a dog and a fox, before realising a cat and mouse would be far more interesting. Straight away, the management at MGM were severely uninterested in the idea of the cartoon, but the boys were given the green light to produce one singular cartoon. The Puss Gets the Boot. Released into theatres, like most animated shorts at the time, on February the 10th, 1940. And again, the studio wasn't too thrilled and told the pair to begin work on other projects. This was until, firstly, a Texas businesswoman wrote in asking if they were making more cat and mouse cartoons. And secondly, because it was a smash hit. The short started doing very well for itself indeed, and the studio capitalised. They realised this cat and mouse needed actual names, and so held an internal contest which was won by an animator called John Carr, who suggested the names Tom and Jerry. Now, it's thought the names have a rather convoluted origin, so bear with me. Being taken from a 1932 story by Damon Runyon, who himself took the names from an 1800 stage play by William Moncrief, which itself was adapted from an 1821 book by Pierce Egan. Just reading that made me genuinely quite tired. So, the newly crowned Tom and Jerry were smashing it out of the park. That very first short even snagged itself an Oscar nomination, and that wouldn't be the last. Over time, Tom and Jerry would go on to become the most successful cartoon of all time, being nominated for 13 Best Animated Shorts at the Oscars, winning seven. That's more than Disney. In fact, it's the most awarded character-based animation series in history. Now, as Tom and Jerry kept going... They got more violent with each other, going from the threat of injury to full-blown hammers to the head. The two also got better looking, as everybody in Hollywood does, as Hannah and Barbera wanted the characters to be able to, in their own words, age gracefully. Tom the cat had his fur gradually smoothed and began to walk more commonly on two legs instead of four, whilst Jerry lost his long eyelashes and lost a bit of weight around the midriff. Good for you, Jerry, as long as you're happy. Hannah and Barbera worked on the Tom and Jerry series for over 15 years together, creating over 110 different Tom and Jerry cartoons. But the fun couldn't last forever, as in 1957, MGM decided to close their animation department as they believed they had enough in their archives to sustain them forever. And so that was it. In 1957, 
The original Hanna-Barbera Tom and Jerry was laid to rest, as the boys moved on to do not much of note, just create an animation studio that produced the Flintstones, Yogi Bear, Top Cat, Wacky Races, Scooby-Doo, the Smurfs, and Dexter's Laboratory. Yeah, very quiet careers. But all is not lost. It's not the last time Hanna-Barbera works on Tom and Jerry. We just have to wait a few years. 18, if we're counting. So... Between 1957 and 1975, Tom and Jerry were revived twice, both with varying degrees of success. Firstly, in a short run of cartoons in 1961 by Gene Deitch, a man who had not really watched much Tom and Jerry, and it showed. And again, in 1963 by Chuck Jones, before 1975 hits, and Hanna-Barbera returns, with a format completely different than the previous ultra-violent cat and mouse. In fact, Tom and Jerry in this series do the unthinkable and become friends and go on adventures around the world. This was due to regulations at the time in the US about violence in children's television. This particular format hasn't been used since, and Tom and Jerry have returned to their usual blood sport ever since. We've seen several other iterations of Tom and Jerry, including a series that is currently running under the Warner Brothers banner, a feature film in 1992 called Tom and Jerry the Movie, not too original there, and also, far more recently, in 2021, in a film even more simply titled Tom and Jerry, starred actors like Chloe Moretz, Rob Delaney, and Ken Yong. Now, Tom and Jerry are those rare beasts that are properly timeless. There's nothing about a cat or mouse that dates. A hammer on the head in 1960 is the same as a hammer on the head in 2024. So this is why so many other characters fall to the wayside and bow at the feet of our feline and marsupial overlords. Tom and Jerry, you're great, but you're not world-changing great. The debut of Tom and Jerry gets a 7 out of 10 on my popometer today. Now then, let's play a guessing game. We went very royal in the very first story today. So let's test your knowledge on some fictional royals in our guessing game of the day. Let's start with some Disney. In the Disney movie Frozen, Queen Elsa is the ruler of what kingdom? It's Arendelle. And in the Lord of the Rings series, which character was crowned the very first High King of the reunited kingdom of Gondor and Arnor? It's Aragorn. Which fictional queen married Carl Drogo in the Game of Thrones series? It's the Stormborn, Daenerys Targaryen. Hard one now. In the Chronicles of Narnia, the four Pevensey children are crowned rulers of Narnia. What are their names? Susan, Lucy, Edmund, and Peter. Couple more for you. What is the name of the fearless Spartan king in the film 300? King Leonidas. And in the Little Mermaid films, King Triton is Ariel's father and ruler of what kingdom? If you said Atlantis, you're wrong. It's Atlantica. And finally, for a bit of fun, who is king of the lemurs in the Madagascar movies? That's King Julian. Time for the final story of the day. From fictional royalty to real-life bona fide musical royalty, king of the comedy song, prince of the parody, monarch of madness and sultan of silly. There's only one man we could be talking about, and on the 11th of February 1983, that man... Weird Al Yankovic finished and completed his debut album. Movies, I take up seven rooms, be 
Now, if I was to tell you that the man we are talking about today has won five Grammys and had 11 nominations, has sold over 12 million albums, has produced his own major movie, seven platinum records, has appeared on The Simpsons and won an Emmy Award, you wouldn't believe it was the same man that created the song Fat as a parody of Michael Jackson's Bad. But it is. Alfred Yankovic, or Weird Al, was given a choice in high school. His music teacher sat him down and said, I will teach you the guitar, or I will teach you the accordion. And Weird Al looked him square in the eyes and said, Pass me that accordion. He said he wanted to play rock and roll on the accordion like Elton John. And I said, fair enough. He then swiftly forgot his rock and roll dreams and started writing silly comedy songs and parody music. So... He becomes obsessed with a radio show presented by a man known as Dr. Demento after he came and spoke at Weird Al's school. So Al, being the productive little bean that he is, began sending Dr. Demento tapes to put on the radio. And on the radio they went. And it seems like listeners really liked Weird Al's work because he kept sending songs and Dr. Demento kept playing them. People liked it so much that when Weird Al released a cover of the Knack song My Sharona with the song My Bologna... The Knack themselves suggested that Capitol Records should release it as an official single, which they did, signing Weird Al Yankovic to a proper recording contract. Not bad for a teenager currently studying architecture. And Al started getting popular pretty quick. Within a few years, he had his own touring band and was opening for the band Missing Persons. He achieved his first top 40 hit song with the song I Love Rocky Road. And on that titular date, the 11th of February 1983, he completed his debut album. That success paled in comparison to what came next, though. As in 1984, Weird Al released Eat It, one of his most famous parodies, taking the mickey out of Michael Jackson's Beat It. The song got incredibly popular, and the music video is still known as one of the most iconic ever, as Weird Al managed to shot-for-shot remake the Beat It music video in his own style. It's honestly one of the greatest films ever, in my opinion. Who needs Shawshank Redemption? That same year, he also got his own TV show on MTV called Al TV, and things were looking up. Give it one more year, and in 1985, he already had a story of his life, as he directed a mockumentary about himself called The Complete Owl, which in itself was a play on the Complete Beatles documentary. That man could literally parody in his sleep. He kept on keeping on in the 1990s, releasing countless albums and singles that charted in the top 40 in the US and around the world, even going so far as getting the blessing of mythical band Nirvana for his song Smells Like Nirvana, with Kurt Cobain going on record saying, having Weird Al cover one of our songs means we have really made it. And you know, every week whilst I'm researching for this show, I always stumble on a fact that is my absolute favourite of the week. And this, I thought, was brilliant. Weird Al had big eye problems and for most of his early career wore big old thick glasses. But in 1998, was able to get LASIK eye surgery to remove his extreme myopia. And he got it for free because he agreed to let it be broadcast live on television. Can you imagine sitting down to watch a comedian get his eyes lasered? I know I made this joke last week, but that really does sound like an even worse Edinburgh Fringe show to walk into. Or maybe a great comedy series on Dave, comedians getting surgery. The next period of his career is what many would describe as peak Weird Al. 
After surgery, he debuted his famous long curly hair for the first time. And a few years later, in 2006, he released his first platinum album, Straight Out of Linwood, which featured his song White and Nerdy, a parody of Riding Dirty. By far his most popular song ever, reaching into the top ten of the Billboard charts, which is no mean feat for a man writing comedy songs. It was in this early internet era that Al really flourished, being able to release individual singles online, whilst the parodied song was still relevant, rather than wait for the album to drop six months later. Since then, he has maintained his legendary status in the music scene and has done some pretty cool things. He achieved his own walk of fame Hollywood star in 2018 and collaborated with Lin-Manuel Miranda to release The Hamilton Polka, a compilation of songs from the musical Hamilton played by Al on his accordion. And in 2022, wrote another satirical movie about his life, this time foregoing playing himself and letting Harry Potter star Daniel Radcliffe don the weird Al wig. Now look, sure, Al, you're a living legend. You've made many people laugh and smile, and I believe that the creative world is better for having someone who can take the mickey out of an industry that takes itself so seriously. But on the flip side, you can't compare it to the coronation of a queen. Though I bet you'd do a very good impression. Weird Al, I love you, but you're getting a 5 out of 10 on my popometer. I've got to say, final verdict, it's an easy one this week. Once I saw the Queen was coronated this week, I knew there was going to be no contest for my winner. So, after being the longest reigning monarch and one of the most beloved figures in British history, I add one more jewel to our Queen's crown as she joins last week's winner, the launch of the Coca-Cola Company, in the History of Pop Culture Hall of Fame. And there you have it. That is the history of pop culture for the week beginning the 5th of February. I'd love to know what you liked, what you didn't, and anything you think we might have missed or we should be talking about in future editions. Please send through any comments you have straight to me using the email chesney at tleproductions.co.uk. That's T-L-E as in T for totally, L for laborious, and E for example, chesney at tleproductions.co.uk or through my Instagram, chesneyfm. Today's show was, as always, research, written, produced and presented by me, Chesney Forks Porter. It was a TLE production. Have a lovely week and I'll see you next time. Bye-bye now. <laughs>